and welcome to Women in Jazz, the podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of female jazz musicians. I'm your host, Irani Nedvetsky, and each month I'll sit down with a different jazz musician to discuss what got her into jazz, her experience developing as a performer, and what life is like as a professional jazz musician today. This month's guest is multi-instrumentalist, vocalist, and composer Camille Thurman. Camille grew up in Queens, New York, and developed her love for music at an early age, practicing flute, piano, and vocals. As a teen, Camille was accepted to Fiorello H. LaGuardia High School of Music and Art and the Performing Arts, where she first picked up the tenor saxophone at age 15. Although Camille's experiences in her later years of schooling almost drove her away from a career in music, she thankfully for us found her way back to jazz, and particularly credits saxophonist Tia Fuller and bassist and vocalist Mimi Jones with helping her to establish herself musically in New York City. In 2013, Camille went on to place as a finalist in the Sarah Vaughan International Vocal Competition, leading to widespread recognition and her first record deal. Since then, Camille has received numerous other awards, played alongside some of the world's greatest active jazz musicians, and recorded four full-length albums as a band leader, including her 2018 release, Waiting for the Sunrise, which debuted at number two on the Billboard Traditional Jazz Albums chart. In 2018, Camille was also invited to join the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra after guesting with the ensemble on several shows, and is the first woman in 30 years to tour and perform full-time with a world-renowned orchestra for two seasons as a saxophonist. Until the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, when not touring with Jazz at Lincoln Center, Camille could often be found on the road leading her own band, the Camille Thurman Quartet. Camille and I caught up via Zoom in December to discuss her earliest influences in music, her experiences at high school, including the gender-based bullying she endured in her later years, and how this contributed to a loss of confidence in her musical ability, the value of mentorship in the development of a young artist, her experience touring with Jazz at Lincoln Centre, and some reflection on how integral representation and community outreach are in bringing more young women and girls to jazz and in restoring jazz to black communities. Just a quick note, if you think you hear some slight jingling noises during the interview, you're not wrong. Uh, Camille was wearing some really lovely dangly earrings and they turned out to be the culprit of the noise. So there's not something behind you. Keep listening. It's all good. So... Here's my conversation with Camille. So thank you so much for joining me, Camille. It's uh, really, really great to get to talk to you. My pleasure. (laughs) Awesome. So I'm kind of curious. We said a little bit before about it, but I'm interested to know, you know, where you're at this year and how things are going for you at the moment. We're in a pretty dark time for musicians, I feel. Yeah, it's quite an interesting time that's never happened before like this. But um, for me personally, I've, I've been using this time to, I think the best way to put it is unplug. Sometimes, mm. as musicians, we're, we're on the road so much and we're moving around. And even when we're home, we're still moving around that we don't quite get to have that period of solitude to kind of get in touch with yourself. Mm. So it's been a period of going through 10 years of music <laughs> and organizing it. <laughs> Uh, thinking about projects that maybe you've always wanted to do, but now figuring out how mm. to do it because you have the time to. Um, for myself and my partner, we've created a home studio, which is interesting because he was actually putting this together 
long before the pandemic was even thought of. And when it <laughs> happened, it just kind of happened to be, he was like, well, all I need is X, Y, and Z and we could be up and running in no mm-hmm. time. <laughs> so that's been quite of an experience learning how to be now engineers and how to edit and also be video editors too. Yeah. The whole production. The whole production. <laughs> a few concerts from our house live stream, which that has been a whole process of learning in itself. Mm. But overall, it's despite it being a terrible <laughs> situation, like a nightmare, mm. um, it, there's been a lot of great, beautiful things that have been happening out of mm. this. A lot of learning, a lot of creating, which is great. And I'm, I'm fortunate I live with a wonderful, fantastic drummer. So we've been doing a lot of collaborating and creating at home together, which is big. cool. Um, I wonder, how do you feel? I guess if you have him at home, it's nice because you can riff off of each other. But yeah. do you feel a difference in your own creative energy because you don't have the same kind of environment anymore? Yeah, it's been kind of different. Um, the last two years, I was working with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. Um, we were touring full time. Mm. So for the pandemic to happen, it literally put everything in a halt because we were in the middle of our season. We literally just got back a week before the pandemic from doing the European tour. Oh, <laughs> we got home just in the nick of time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but once being home, it was like this infinite stillness. I felt mm. kind of weird because it's like, wait a minute, I should be practicing music. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Because normally my mind is on a mode of, okay, we're preparing music. Okay, I'm learning music. Okay, I'm studying. I'm shedding on my horn. I'm doing all these different things because I'm always moving. And mm. I'm so critical. So I have to think of it in increments of this is going to serve this purpose, that purpose, and this and that. And now we're just sitting still with a big old question mark of if... <sighs> even going to play and then of course a week turns into three weeks yeah another month gets canceled then you start to see the tours fall through Hmm. and then you see the season falls through (laughs) and then you see the rest of the year fall through and then you see the following (laughs) so you're just sitting there just like okay (laughs) yeah what is Yeah, it really does start to bring that question, doesn't it? Like, yeah, oh, it really does. And I, I kind of, for the first time, had to. I mean, this has probably been years coming, mm. but for me, I had to really take this time to sit still mm. and be comfortable with that because. As musicians, we're always hustling. We're always mm. the next project, the next gig, the next tour. Because in between working with the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra, I was also working with my own group, my own band, booking tours and um, putting together concerts, putting together album projects, which that in itself is already kind of crazy with a tight schedule. Yeah, yeah. And working that much and at that level, it's like, I guess it's pretty addictive. Yeah, it can be. It can be. Do you feel like there's something from that that you will take away, something from this year that you'll take away? Or are you feeling like maybe as soon as you can hit the ground running again, you're just going to be hitting the ground running? (laughs) You know, it's it's funny because as musicians, like I've talked with a couple other friends and for us, it's just been high, low, high, low. So it's like, okay, when the doors open and they say we can gig, I'm going to go out there and get all the gigs in the world. But then you have that period of, 
no, I think when the door is open, I'm going to mm. go in a little wiser and be conscious of physically what am I capable of doing with the space of time that I've given versus what's being required of me. Yeah. Because the pandemic has now made us realize you can only do but so much. There's going to be things that are out of your control. And yeah. when it's out of your control, you're going to have to shift and reorganize. And you're also going to have to take into account that you only get one body. And you cannot possibly continue on on a long-term basis mm. running yourself down crazy, doing everything. So yeah. maybe when things open up again now, okay, I'm going to think about what do I really want to invest myself in and how much time am I willing to allow myself to invest in it so that there's still something for myself to go home to and be able to mm. have. Yeah. So perhaps being a bit more like wise and self-aware and connected to your needs. Yes, I I feel that. I fear my ability to implement it when this this time is over, personally speaking for myself, Uh, but I I see very much what you mean. Yeah. So going back to way before all of the insanity, I'm really just curious to find out how you got into music at all, not just jazz, but uh, what drew you to saxophone and sure. so on? Um, I kind of stumbled upon it. I started out on flute. And when I first started playing, I didn't realize that I had perfect pitch. I just had a knack for hearing things and just kind of picking it up mm. with anything. And I started playing flute. My mother, she was a school teacher. She would confiscate stuff all the time from students. And one day she brought home a mouthpiece. And I thought it was... A clarinet mouthpiece. And for me, I was like, oh, I want to play clarinet because I had these moments of, okay, I want to play trumpet. Okay, I want to play flute. Okay, I want to play clarinet. Okay, I want to play French horn. So I went to my band teacher the next day and I was like, what's this? Can I play the clarinet with it? And he looked at it and he was like, oh, wait a minute, it's a saxophone mouthpiece. And I was like, oh, it's a saxophone mouthpiece. Can I play a saxophone? And he was like, mm, first off, Thurman, you need to work on just the flute itself. Just get your stuff together, deal with that one instrument, take it one instrument at a time, and then we could talk. And I kept nagging him. I was like, well, I just want to play. I just want to try it. Can you let me try it? And then he told me, he was like, listen, if you play the saxophone, if you play the flute and play the clarinet, you can one day work on Broadway. And then my eyes were just like, I want to work on Broadway. I want to be a player. That's my dream. <laughs> so I made, a deal. I made deals with him all the time. I was like, listen, I'll give my lunch period. I don't even, even want to go outside because all we're going to do is just stand around and look cute and look at each other. And that's not <laughs> <my thing. laughs> I just want to play this instrument. So c- can you let me come down for lunch period to the mm. band room? I'll take the books and teach myself. You don't even have to t- do anything. I'll wow. Do he was like, okay. So I, I spent the rest of that school year going every day to my lunch period. Even my, some of my friends were like, don't you feel weird doing that? You're the only girl doing that. You should be... And I was like, but this is what I want to do. Wow. It sounds like you're already then like quite passionate about playing music. Was that just always in your life growing up? Uh, I think so. I mean, I remember my mom told me a story of how she had these recorders because she was a music teacher too at one point. And she had a box of recorders that was sitting there for years. And I remember in my elementary school, we, we didn't have instruments. Actually, we did. But the, the school teacher was like, well, you know, we, we can't afford to fix them. So they're just sitting on the stage, backstage, collecting dust. And I remember how that made me feel when she told me that. 
<laughs> and I went home and I cleaned off all these recorders. I didn't even tell my mom. I just bought them in the box with me. I don't know how she didn't catch me because it was a big box. <laughs> and I went to school the next day and I said, Miss Jackman, I know you're starting a recorder pro- program and we don't have enough recorders. Here's a whole bunch of recorders. <laughs> oh, God. Like, is this okay with your mom? I was like, it's okay. <laughs> oh, my God. And my mom was like, hello. She was like, oh, thank you so much for the wonderful donation of recorders. And my mom is like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> all 15 of these recorders and the kids are going to be able to play. And my mom looked at me like, what did you do? <laughs> but she couldn't because she was on the phone and she was just like, ah, sure. <laughs> I mean, that sounds ridiculously cute. Surely your mom was proud. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She wasn't at first. She was mad at me at first, but then years later, she was like, "No, yeah, I think you've always had this thing about wanting to play music and give people the mm. chance to be able to do that and share." Mm, so. Yeah. So, how was your whirlwind uh, experience on the recorder then? Um, <laughs> okay. You know, it's funny because I started violin first. Okay. When I was about four, and I had stopped playing. So when I picked up the recorder, I was like maybe ten. Oh wow. And- I was relearning all over again how to play mm-hmm. because when I played violin and taught us via the Suzuki method. Okay. So as we were learning how to find it on our instrument and hear it, then we were learning how to find it on the music. Mm-hmm. And now I hadn't been playing anything at all. I had to kind of re-teach myself mm-hmm. all over again. It was weird because I forgot everything, even though it only had been like six years. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking as an ex-saxophone player, yes, that is a thing. You forget a lot of shit. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, it's my own fault. (laughs) Never too late to pick it up. (laughs) That's so true. Well, I mean, it's all the way in Australia, but I still have a saxophone. So, uh, you know, could be, that could have been my 2020 project. Hopefully, hopefully 2021 doesn't go badly enough that I need it. Um, Um. so, so when you started playing saxophone, was there a call to that instrument because of music that you'd heard it in, or was it just like this looks funky and I want to play it because I saw a mouthpiece? Like, I did notice there was one girl in the sax section that played, and I noticed I was like, man, that's that's so cool. And I remember we were playing. I think it was actually the Christmas song. <laughs> we had a band arrangement of it, and I remember closing my eyes and listening to the movement of the the instruments and how the voice leading was kind of progressing through the lower ends of the instruments, the tenor saxophones, the alto saxophones, the baritone. And I was like, man, that just feels so warm and beautiful. Mm. And that just got me hooked. I was like, I want to be able to be inside that sound and play mm-hmm. those kind of feelings. Mm-hmm. And so as you were starting to learn, like, what were you interested in first? What were you drawn to? And how did that evolve? Well, it took some time. Hmm. When I was in eighth grade, my band teacher, he knew I was graduating and he was really interested in in nurturing and continuing my love and growing musically. And he told my mother about a college preparatory program for young kids at Queens College. And he was like, listen, you got to have Camille audition for this program. I think she can get in. I know the teacher. I'll talk to them. And my mom, you know, even though I, I had both parents, I was raised in a single parent household because my parents were separated. Mm. And, you know, for a single parent, you're already just trying to take care of your child and keep things going. And 
financially, it might be a luxury to be able to just, sure, spend 1500 bucks and send your child to a camp for a week. So she was kind of like, well, I want my, my daughter to experience this, but at the same time, I'm afraid that I might not be able to show up for my daughter financially mm-hmm. supporting this. And he knew that and he believed in me and it was like, just have her audition. So I took the audition and I got in on full scholarship. Wow. Great. That was my first time really getting immersed in the world of jazz because before that I was only playing band music. That's all I knew. I wasn't taking private lessons, but then here I was in this camp with other people that were excited about the music. I got to be introduced to jazz. I fell in love with Dexter Gordon. Mm. I did my first transcription, I remember, for a listening class we had. And most of the students were in high school. I think I was probably one of the younger ones. And when he mentioned that word transcription, I was like, wait, what's that? <laughs> and he was like, oh, you're going to listen and you're going to hear what's happening on the record and you're just going to find it on your instrument and do it. And when he played that record um, from Dexter Gordon's Go, Second Balcony Jump, that tune, I was like, I can't do that. This sounds amazing, but I don't understand what he's doing. But I love it, but I don't understand what he's doing. And that challenge kind of pushed me outside of my comfort zone Mm. and made me do something I never thought I could possibly do, which was hear the music and understand it. And in doing that, and then also in finding my love for Dexter Gordon, I found the confidence to want to keep learning and keep pushing and keep growing. Mm. And that's what kind of really gave me that fire of, of really knowing this is what I want to do. I want to try to figure it out. Mm. Sounds like a inspiring uh, environment to be put into at such a formative age. Yeah. And so, and so then my understanding was that you went to, uh, I f- I'm, uh, forgive me, I've forgotten the name. It's a, It was a high school in uh, LaGuardia that's like a music yeah. uh, kind of, it's like a theater-y, music-y school or something like that? It's a performing arts and visual arts high school. Okay. And uh, and what was that experience like? Because that school's quite famous in yeah around the kind of New York area, right? Or even in the States broadly, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's in the country, actually. Um, it's a specialized public performing arts and visual arts high school that you audition to get into. So students from all over the city apply and even students from out of the country and out of state find a way to live with somebody in the city and and get in somehow. But it's a great school that many wonderful artists graduated from and did great things. Yeah. What was what was your time like there and how did that kind of fit into your into your playing and what inspired you? Well, it was. It was a good experience. It was it was hard. Mm. I that from jump, it was very hard. The first two years were amazing. I studied with a uh, renowned educator and tubist, Bob Stewart, and he had a passion for this music and it was infectious. He just kind of made us love the music from how he spoke about it. And he included us in his experience as a musician. It wasn't like, okay, do these scales and then just do that and then okay, leave me alone. No, it was like, this is my world. And this is what I do for a living. You'd walk into his band room and you would see posters from all the jazz festivals he performed. So when you're walking in a classroom, it's like, I'm walking now into this space that's part of my experience too. Mm -hmm. And you got the feeling of, well, if he's doing this now and he can do it, then I could do it too. 
because he's giving us an inside look into what the possibilities are, especially for young inner city high school kids that are coming from situations where we might not have the means or the opportunities readily available. This was like a glimmer of hope for us to walk into the space and be with him. And yeah. he taught us so much music. He brought in so many great artists. i never forget we were studying... Um, a piece, I can't remember if it was for the essentially Ellington competition, but I remember he just was like, okay, stop everything. Pulled in the television, popped in the tape, showed us a video. But Lester Young and Billie Holiday, and they were playing fine and mellow. Mm. And the way he was just talking about Lester Young and Billie Holiday and how musically they, not only did they have a relationship off the bandstand as close friends, but you could hear and analyze the music and hear that mm. affinity for one another and analyze how... They approach the music and in all the different players within the band and their way of expressing themselves over the blues. Mm. And that just kind of inspired me because it was like, wow, I've never learned this way from somebody pulling out a record, showing me the video, breaking it down, talking about what the blues means as far as feeling and expression and mm. showing it right in front of my face how it works when it comes to playing it. And he, he just was phenomenal. But we, I only had him for two years, unfortunately. He actually ended up going to teach at another school. And the last two years was a little bit challenging because Stuart kind of had a way of setting the, the tone for everybody. Everybody was equal. There was no nonsense going on. You couldn't try anything. And even when it came to women and, and men working together in the classroom, he made sure that we all were playing and working together. There was no room for any biases in terms of, you know, gender and whatnot. When he left, that kind of fell apart. Uh. So, and there was already some rumblings of it, but it was checked. Now it wasn't being checked. Yeah, right. And it kind of went for free fall. And the hardest thing is when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, mm. And this is, for me, this was 15, 20 years ago. Wow, 20 years ago. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You don't know what sexism is unless your mom is sitting you down like, okay, sweetheart, this is sexism. No, I didn't have that conversation. And I'm sure some of the other ladies in the class, we didn't have that conversation. We didn't know what it was, but we knew we were being treated differently because of who we were as far as our gender. Mm, And it was made clear in our face, in this particular situation with the band, there was no administrator to nip the bud. Mm. And unfortunately, they put the control of us delegating, well, who does what with charts and who plays on this tune to us, which was like, no, you don't want to do that. Yeah, right. You think that you're instilling responsibility on us when it's like, well, no, you're opening the gates to now. There's seven people in the saxophone section and you got two girls standing for 30, 45 minutes watching the rehearsal when they should be part of the rehearsal. Fuck. So it was very much coming from your peers and the cohort, the other players. Wow. That's just like right in your face experience. Yeah. And it was difficult because even though we, we try to go to administration and say, hey, this is happening to help us do something. The rule at that time was, well, there's no physical abuse. There's no verbal abuse. There's nothing we could do. Do you have any proof? Okay. So there's nothing we could do, which was just a big slap in the face because it was like, well, that's making me feel like I'm delusional when 
I'm dealing with this every day. When a, when a, a young man comes to your face and tells you, we don't want you here because you suck and so-and-so should have got the chair instead of you, how do you deal with that? Mm. How do you deal with a young girl having her instrument, but she's putting it away and coming the next day, finding that somebody stole her mouthpiece because they don't want her to play? Far out. That's some serious bullying, really. Yeah. Was it, maybe this doesn't matter, but I do wonder, do you feel like it was like there was kind of a boys club and they were just really trying to assert some kind of dominance and harass you? Or was it also like a, was there a competitiveness at that school that kind of helped to? It was both. Mm, I mean, okay. the unfortunate thing was not everybody was like that. It was only a few that kind of made it really hard. But also the situation was that the ones that were doing it, if you had friends that weren't doing it, it was kind of like, okay, you're not saying anything or, okay, you might be saying something, but the administration is not coming in. So what does it even matter? Mm. <laughs> Cause now it's still nothing being done. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, you don't have to ask this question, but I am, uh, again, I'm curious, like, do you have contact with any of the people that were in your cohort now? Are any of them kind of playing jazz or playing in a similar environment to you? And if you do have those people around, like, have you, do you have a relationship with them now? Have you talked to them about any of this stuff? Like, um, I haven't talked to any of the students in a long time. Um, okay. There's a few of them that I, every now and then we see each other just either on social media or once in a blue moon, a social gathering with musicians and, oh, hey, oh, it's great to see you. And you're like, y'all, I'm playing with Lincoln Center. <laughs> I got my own band. I'm touring everywhere. Suck it. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember the one time I was playing with this band and I, I had my horn and I saw this guy who was one of the guys who was doing, I guess, the bullying and the, the gender bias. He saw me and I guess he saw the look on my face when I saw him. This was like a couple of years after we graduated. He kind of was like taken aback and he walked up to me. He was like, I'm so sorry for the way I treated you. Wow. Which shocked me because I was, I wasn't expecting that mm. at all. But yeah, there was, there was some competitiveness, but then also the whole mm, macho. Yeah. And I guess that kind of thing Obviously, it starts somewhere, but I can see if you have kind of a whole cohort of boys like that, that it that energy, it just sort of could build within itself or, yeah, they reinforce each other and it sort of builds into this kind of whole big thing because it sounds yeah. pretty extreme, yeah, what you went through. Yeah, looking back, I realized that was a very rare and extreme mm. situation. But then the funny thing is, once I started touring with the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra, young girls started kind of reaching out to me or I would see them on tour in between soundcheck or at the concert. They would come up to me mm. and sometimes they would mention these things. And I, I would just stand there like, oh, my gosh, dang it. This is still happening 15 years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons I, I was driven to do this project was just feeling like from what I was observing that it must take quite a lot of resilience. I mean, I think, you know, person to person, of course, the experience varies, but I see that at the very least, the default 
expectation is maybe that they are not good and they need to prove themselves rather than, you know, oh, come in and join us. You know, like they're not being invited into the room. They kind of have to push insert themselves there and then like prove that they're worthy before they can be accepted. And I think even just having that energy must take you know, a lot of, a lot of resilience and a lot of just passion, just straight up like enthusiasm for what you do. Yeah. And it also takes having mentors too. I mean, Mm. for me, when I was 15, 16, I didn't have mentor. I had, I had one mentor, but that particular moment in my life, if I had mentors around me, Mm. or even if I knew of a woman role models that did play jazz at a high level, I think it probably would have helped. Yeah. Because I didn't get that until I was in my 20s. And mm. by the time I graduated high school, I was like, I'm done. And I actually stopped playing for about right. a year. So, yeah. yeah. Was that off of the back of the experiences you were having at the school? Yeah. The majority of it was the experiences at the school, um, feeling that there was failure on the school's part to intervene, but then also just feeling broken Mm. from the experience. Like just, it was traumatic emotionally, mentally waking up. Like, I don't want to go to school because I know what's waiting for me or, okay, if I touch my instrument and I try to take a solo, they're going to laugh at me in my face. If I make a mistake or the constant pressure, I cannot make a mistake. I cannot make a mistake because if I make a mistake, I'm going to hear it till kingdoms come. So I need to hold myself together every and any time I step into this place, which is a lot mentally. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And so that year after you left, when you you stopped playing, what was that year like? And um, what started to bring you back into music? Well, after I graduated, I took a semester off actually, because I, I wanted at first, I wanted to go to music school because all my friends were going to music school. And for me, the experience wasn't quite the same. Um, when you're applying for music school, the first thing they want to know is who's your teacher. <laughs> and when you're going to a performing arts high school, it's great. But if you have no history musically of who you've been studying with and you're applying for schools, <sighs> that can feel kind of discouraging. And That's such a fucking whack system. I didn't realize that. That's uh Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's God, that just reinforces like existing institutions of power as well. Like Yeah. I mean, I would always get nervous filling out those college applications when I was in high school because I was like, well, I don't have a private teacher, but I'm doing all these amazing things. Doesn't this matter? And I even remember doing the audition CD. It was it was a miracle my recording uh, technology teacher, he knew that I needed help recording. And he was like, look, just come after school, grab a couple of guys, let's play. And I remember doing that. And he was a godsend because I was like, I don't know how I'm going to record an audition tape for my college application. And he helped me get it done, but I applied. And my experience was two schools I got into, but the problem was they, they said, congratulations, we'll give you a scholarship. But the scholarship was like, 12,000, but the tuition was like 50, 60,000 a year. Fuck. And my mom was just like, I want you to go, but how the heck are we going to make that happen? And there was a couple of other schools that I applied to. 
um, I didn't make. And then there was one school that I actually got into, but there was a teacher that was really, he was a great supportive friend. And he knew that I was trying to find a school to get into. He, he knew the situation for, for us children of color because it wasn't just like, okay, yeah, I just apply to a school and go. No, we were dealing with, okay, how are we going to get the money for the application? Who are we going to be saying we're taking lessons from? What repertoire are we working on personally, aside from school stuff? So he kind of helped me. And he was like, listen, mm. I saw the audition tape. Here's the scenario. They want to take you for flute, but they don't want to take you for saxophone because the flute pl- player is graduating and they figure they could just have you go. Uh, of the panel, about three people said yes and one person said no, who was a woman. And he was just like, I'm sorry, I'm trying to do my best to advocate for you. If you don't mind, you can go in as a flautist and you could change it when you get there. And I remember feeling just this experience of applying college should be one of the most exciting encouraging greatest feelings in the world and i feel like a ton of bricks just hit me Uh. (laughs) it's not the money then it's the politics and this was my first introduction as a kid realizing you're not a kid you're entering the world of Mm. of politics of financial politics social politics um music politics and you know also the other idea of well when you're dealing with race politics too, that's a factor in whether or not they got enough of a quota or whether they don't have enough of a quota and where they want to stick you to based on not how you play, but based on what requirement needs to be filled. Uh-huh. And by the time I finished my senior year, I was just like, look, I'm done. <laughs> I'm good. I don't want to major in music. I don't want to play music. My experience at this school was just the last two years was traumatic and now dealing with the politics of how all this college crap work, I don't even want to be bothered because it's not even about how you play. Mm-hmm. It's all about everything else but playing. And if you are a person that can play and you want to learn, it's not really about taking on students to teach. It's really about, well, what are you bringing for me so I can exploit? And that's what I was mm-hmm. thinking at this age. So I was just like, I'm done. <laughs> so wow. <I> demoralizing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I took a semester off. Um, My teacher, Mr. Stewart, he saw me months after I graduated. He was like, hey, what's going on? What school are you going to? And I told him the story. And he was just like, I'm so sorry, Camille. He was like, if I was there, that would not have happened. Mm. And then he was like, well, listen, you know, I know some people. Why don't we try to pull some strings and get you to audition? But by that time, I was just like, I don't think this is for me. And I ended up going to Binghamton University to major in science. But the funny thing was um, all my professors there played music in a weird way. (laughs) So I was trying to get away from playing and now all my teachers are musicians. (laughs) Rebecca plays French horn. Eric (laughs) plays organ in a rock band. And there are a couple of other teachers that play guitar or song and whatnot. So I transferred there and I ended up meeting the jazz band teacher up there too. They didn't have a jazz program. They had a, a music program, but it wasn't like they had a jazz department. It was just a jazz band. So I was like, okay, that's cool. I could possibly maybe get my feet wet. And I found a teacher and I said, hey, do you have auditions? And he was like, yeah, we have auditions tomorrow. Come on through. <laughs> and I was just like, okay. <laughs> so the next day, as I was preparing, I remember sitting on my dorm bed, contemplating if I should go or not. And I missed the audition because I was just stuck trying to contemplate, should I go? 
Should I not go? Okay, if I go, is it going to be the same experience that I just came out? Okay, I'm too scared to deal with that again. So maybe I shouldn't go. Oh, maybe I should go. And I, I was just stuck, frozen. <laughs> so the next day he saw me, he was like, hey, we were looking for you. And I told him, I was like, I don't think you want me in your band. And of course, he's looking at me like I'm crazy. And he was like, why would you say that? And I was like, well, I told him my whole experience. And I said, listen, I'm going to make your band sound terrible. Because that's what I was told before <laughs> many times. I'm terrible. I'm horrible. I mean, I, I don't think I'm the right person for you. And, you know, that's that. And he was like, you went to a performing arts high school that's one of the best high schools in the country. I'm sure you could play something. <laughs> I was like, ah, I don't think you want me. So he was like, well, listen, let's just do a, a improv class. Okay. Get your feet wet. Come play a little bit of the blues. Take it from there. And I said, okay. And I signed up for it. He did a late admin because I was already like two weeks in the semester. <laughs> and he put me in. And I remember we were going down the line listening to an Abersol recording, just taking a chorus each. And when it was my turn, he had his back turned away from us just doing paperwork. Uh-huh. When I played in the first note, he dropped the papers and he turned around and looked and was like, oh, shoot. So after <laughs> class was over, he said, Camille, I need to talk to you. And I was like, okay, did I do something terrible? <laughs> oh. <laughs> he was like, you can play. And I was like, no, no, I know I can't. He oh, like, no. He was like, you can play. And he, he sat with me for like an hour or so and we just talked. And he was like, you know what? I think I figured it out. You needed a safe place to learn. Mm. You never had a chance to have that. Those last two years, it wasn't safe. And dealing with what you dealt with, which is technically bullying because of your gender and other girls' genders, that wasn't safe for you to learn. So he said, this is what I could promise you. You can practice anytime you want here. Nobody, including myself, the men and women, we're all equal, going to be treated equal up here. We're not going to judge you or criticize you and make fun of you because of your playing. We're going to encourage each other based on how we work together as a team. And I can mm-hmm. guarantee you nobody's going to humiliate, embarrass you, or make you feel bad for being who you are. And I, I just remember my heart just sunk to the floor because I was just like, wow, this is the first time I ever felt safe to be able to just play. Mm-hmm. That's all I wanted to do, just play. Yeah. and. It just felt like a weight just being lifted. Just finally, just come in here and just learn. I just want to learn. That's all I want to do. And I, I grew so much in those four years. Mm-hmm. He was so supportive. And he would give me his gigs. <laughs> He'd be like, oh, I can't make this gig. I'm like, no, but you you know, take the gig. And he knew I needed this space to be able to just try to learn, mm-hmm. build my confidence as a player so that I can get to the point where I could just go. Wow. And, yeah. Wow. What a great mentor and just like support to have someone recognize what you needed and to encourage your, and to encourage your talent. How great, how great for all of us that that teacher did that. That's uh, really amazing. I'm grateful for him every day and so many other people. (laughs) And so was that then, you said that he gave you uh, some of his gigs. Was that your first experience gigging or had you already done a bit of that when you're in school like how did you start playing more professionally we already kind of doing that in school okay but this was like the first time 
outside of school that, okay, now I'm getting called for gigs where you're showing up as a horn player, counting off tunes playing. Yeah. Cool. And uh, what was that experience like? I guess at this point you've started really developing your own sort of tastes and interests and your own style as a player. Uh, How was that growing and developing and what were your inspirations? Well, my biggest inspiration was Dexter Gordon, hands down, just because when I would hear him play, he had such wit and strength and confidence. <laughs> And I think even at 12 years old, I didn't know exactly what I, how to explain what I wanted, but I knew when I heard him play, I wanted that confidence. I wanted to feel like I was 10 feet tall playing the saxophone. I wanted to just be able to kind of like wham with my ideas, (laughs) just like he was on his records. Um, Of course, Sarah Vaughn, Mm. even though she was a singer. And that was the other thing too. I I wasn't really singing. I was singing, but it was kind of under wraps. For a long time, but when I, he- I I heard her sing and I saw her sing on performances, I could see the confidence that she had up front on stage and knowing exactly how she wanted to sing that song and then interacting with the band like a musician. So those two people were my main inspirations as far as developing the musical confidence, but then also developing an ear and understanding for the music and just loving it. Mm. You said that your singing was, I I don't know if I'm going to quote you correctly, but you said your singing was under wraps for a while. What does that mean? (laughs) I was mainly playing. Mm. I knew I could sing, but I never thought of myself at the time, like, I am a singer because I was putting all this time practicing my horn and Mm. transcribing. And in my head, I was thinking, well, you put time into those things that you do. So you, you say that you can do them because you put time into it. I'm not practicing singing my scales. I'm practicing my scales on my horn. But then the funny thing was when I was transcribing, I was singing. Mm. I thought I was just learning music. I didn't really look at it as, oh, shoot, I'm singing and I'm playing. No, I was like, I'm trying to get this solo. Okay, how can I hear it and articulate Mm. just right so that I could be able to transfer it to my horn? And little did I know, I was working on my singing doing that. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Yeah. So when I was in my 20s, my early, early 20s, my, two of my mentors, uh, Mimi Jones, Antoine Roney, and actually it was, it was three, um, Michael Carbone, my professor from school, all three of them said, listen, you can sing. You need to sing and play. And I was hesitant at first, but with their encouragement, I did it. I mean, I didn't do it when I was 15 because you go through the train station all the time. People see with the horn, they're like, what's that, a violin? Or can you sing? And you're like, but I have an instrument. <laughs> yeah. Or you, they see you hanging with the band and the guys. And like, oh, you're the singer. And it's like, I can sing, but I play an instrument. Oh, <laughs> uh, the classic the classic conundrum of any woman in a proximity to a jazz band. It's like. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's why I was like, be quiet. Fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, I guess. Yeah, did that play into it? Like you didn't, you didn't want to be like stereotyped as a singer. So you, did you fight that at all, or I, I fought with it a lot. Most of the time, the fight was people not even thinking you could play. Hmm. And then it's, I mean, not that I cared. I really didn't care. But I do remember so many times, I was fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, getting on the New York City subway, going to school, 
and people looking at you like, you play that big instrument or can you really play? Okay, pull it out right now. Show me if you can play. You don't want to play? Nah, you can't play. And it's like, why do I have to? Pr- I don't have to prove anything to you. Yeah, fuck that. Wow. Yeah, but then you know, my guy friends, they would they wouldn't ask them, and I'm just like, this is really weird. Why are you talking to me like you're questioning my ability mm. when you're not even questioning him? <laughs> yeah, terrible. Yeah. Um, and so you had all this encouragement to start singing. Were you starting to just do that on the gigs that you were playing as an instrumentalist or like, was there, was that evolving in a separate, uh, I don't know, train or whatever (laughs) track? Um, it didn't start right away. When I got out of college, my mentor, Mimi Jones, she was the one that told me I should start a band. And I was like, no, I need to play and get some experience with people first and apprentice. And and she's like, you'll do that. You'll do that. But you're going to have a band, too, one day. Hmm. And I was like, OK, if you say so. <laughs> but as I started working with other people and, and including her band, she started building it in the set, having me sing <laughs> because I was super shy. I did not want hmm. anybody to see or hear me sing. <laughs> But she made little opportunities where she kind of made me get comfortable with doing both. And then, of course, once I started working more, I started uh, my own band. And then I started experimenting with it. Okay, well, what if I sing a tune for the set? The six tunes in the set, I'll sing one. Okay, well, what happens if I could play a ballad? I could play the melody, but take the head out singing. Or, okay, I'll sing the melody, but I'll take a tenor. So I started realizing oh, wow, there's something that's being brought here that's unique. And even a response mm. from the people was like night and day. Like, you sing now? Oh, you sing? <sighs> Can you sing another one? <laughs> and it's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I mentored Anton Roney. He was very, very instrumental in helping me develop because he realized right then and there, he was like, you need to develop your craft. Because if this is what you do, you don't just do it because you can do it. You do it because this is who you are. So if you're going to do it, how are you going to make it so that people know that's Camille Thurman? Mm. Are you going to design your set? How are you going to arrange your music so that it fits you? How are you going to pick tunes that are good tunes and not just, oh, we're just going to call it at the jam session. We'll just do it at the gig. He really taught me how to think as, well, how to develop as an artist. Mm. And he started showing me all these videos of Shirley Horn and Sarah Vaughn and, and different people. And then he taught me about Louis Jordan and Carmen McRae and how all these great musicians were instrumentalists and singers and how they took their craft to another level by using both to create mm-hmm. an artistic experience, not just this is what I could do. See me yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned just then uh, jam sessions and and your experience developing your own thing. As you were kind of coming up as a professional musician in New York, what was that experience like? I mean, you said, you know, you you started your own band and so you were playing in Mimi Jones's uh, band as well. Mm -hmm. But I guess were you also just like going into jams? Like how are you building your professional environment and your community? Yeah. Well, part of it was my community, the the core of it was my musical family. Um, People like my mentors, Mimi Jones, Antoine Roney, Tia Fuller, uh, Bill Saxon, Bruce Williams, Abraham Burton, 
Daryl Green, uh, Jason Marshall. They were like my immediate musical family, which was the first thing I, I developed when I got back to the city mm-hmm. because they kind of helped me get into the scene. It's one thing to just show up and be like, I'm here in New York. Here's the jazz scene. It kind of works that way. But the most important thing you have to learn first is developing relationships because you're going to have these relationships for the rest of your career. Hmm. And then some of these relationships you might have to help you get you to the next level, but they're going to be helpful in helping you know how to, how to get your stuff together and get it right so that you're set on the right path. And those people were like my musical family. Hmm. Bertha Hope, they hired me for some of my first gigs or they, they had me sub for them on my first gigs. And in doing that, I learned how to be a musician in those situations. Uh, I learned how to go in the trenches and um, really develop the craft hands-on or pay your dues. And I spent my first couple of years really honing on that. Any and every opportunity that came through was a yes, whether it was in jazz or even outside of jazz. And I also knew the responsibility that I carried in doing it because I knew somebody put their name on the line to have me do it. Mm. So I just made sure every gig or anything that I was involved in, I did it to the best of my ability. And that grew. Yeah. Um, I mean, it just seems like you're just a very conscientious and passionate musician, but I, I do still wonder, did you feel any additional pressure to be to be more perfect, to present yourself in a certain way because you're a woman? Did that, did you feel different pressure? No. Well, I mean, when I first hit the scene, I was definitely hitting up sessions, hands down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the first thing as a musician entering New York City, you, you have to do, mm-hmm. paying the dues. And I remember the very first session I ever went to, I was scared. <laughs> I didn't even play because I was so nervous. But just like you kind of get gradually pulled into the scene through your musical family, Mm -hmm. the same thing happened with the music as far as going to the sessions. Because the more you show up, people start to see you consistently Mm -hmm. and they start to hear you. And then when you're playing at a level where every time you're consistently playing at a great level, that stays in their brain, mm. even though they might not be talking to you or saying, yeah, you sound great. Don't expect anybody to give you compliments because that's not what it's about, one. And two, it's New York City. Everybody's trying to cut everybody. So <laughs> don't come out freely. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it kind of made it so that I kind of gradually got in. And I think had I not had the musical family, it probably would have been a little tougher because, yeah, there were times where you come into the session and people might kind of look you up and size you up as you can't play. Mm-hmm. And then you might be trying to like wait and get to that session and do that song. And it's like 10 choruses later. And then they go to the next song and then they got a whole list of new people. You're like, but wait, I've been here all night. <laughs> but working, having people like Abraham Burton and Shamit Shashan and Eric McPherson, they made it so that myself and, um, Uni Mojica, who was my my close friend, she was playing saxophone at the time. They made it so that they opened up their practice space so that we could practice being in the session. 
So while they were working on their music, we were working on ours together. And every now and then they would come out, Abraham would come out and be like, how you doing? What you working on? Oh, well, I'm working on, okay, well, tell you what, work on this tune. Okay. We work on a tune and we take the tune and pull, pull it apart, analyze harmonically what's happening, look and compare with another tune, that same kind of thing. Okay, well, now we're going to be working on our two fives. Which approach are we going to take? We're going to take with flat nine with the dominant or whatnot. And then that night they would play as a house band for the opening of the session. And then the last tune, they'd be like, hey, Camille and Uni, come on up. Mm. And that kind of, it kind of leveled it out for us versus us just kind of showing up cold turkey and be like can we play mm, yeah okay kinda, as far as the scene it looked like oh shoot they're playing with them it's one thing if they know them but oh they know them and they're playing oh, okay mm-hmm. so if they actually sound good and if they think they're good all right i'll give you a chance and let you play <laughs> and then eventually kind of just yeah happened. yeah cool okay so taking maybe a little bit of a jump ahead now, but to try and discuss as much cool stuff in the interview as possible without going for a hundred years. Cause uh, <laughs> that is my want. And I really need to stop myself from doing that because editing then becomes a nightmare. Um, but uh, so you were playing for Lincoln center or playing with Lincoln center for the last couple of years now. Years. Right. And uh, I was just curious to know, how did that come to be in the first place? And then what has that experience been like? Um, that experience was kind of a surprise. <laughs> um, I was on a tour with my band with the State Department in Africa. And I got a call one morning at three in the morning from Walter Blanding. And he he said, hey, Camille, um, you know, it's Walter. And I was like, oh, hi, Walter. And I'm just like, how did you get my number? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I know you, but not know you personally. I've seen you and I love you, but you get my number. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm well. I'm like, I'm in the middle of Africa. <laughs> Three in the morning. <laughs> and he was like, oh, man, that's cool. He's like, well, I don't want to take up your time and run up your bill. I'm like, no, not at all. I mean, you're Walter. <laughs> and uh, he was like, well, I just want to throw an idea out at you and see if you're interested. He was like, you know, Winton and I were talking. And he's like, I have to leave uh the band for some time would you be interested in playing a whole season with the orchestra and i almost dropped the phone i mean because i mean everybody knows nobody really leaves the band mm-hmm. <laughs> you stay there for a long time you might have a sub every once in a blue moon but for something like that, that never really happens like that. So yeah. I said, okay, um, can I think about it? <laughs> because in my brain, I'm like, I'm a Capricorn. So even though we might look like, okay, everything's cool. And in our <laughs> brain, it's like a roll. It's like, <laughs> mm. everything that we have to do. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to figure out how I can maneuver out of all of these tours for the next year that I booked. <gasps> okay. <laughs> and contracts that I already signed. But Okay. So I, I said, thank you. I'm going to take a minute. I promise you I'll get back to you tomorrow. He was like, all right, cool. Take your time. Do what you have to do. The first thing I did, I contacted my mentors <laughs> and my mom. <laughs> mm. And every last one of them said, do it. They all said, look, this is an opportunity that doesn't come often at all. And the simple fact that they thought to call you is humongous. And that means something. And if you don't take this, (laughs) 
we're going to have to knock you upside your head and make you take it. So I called him the next morning and I said, yes, I'll happily do it. And one year ended up turning into two years, which was wow. amazing. Yeah. And um, how how has it been? How has it been to to play in that environment and in that I mean, you said, you know, it, it's a well-known fact that people don't really leave. Like, it is an institution. So stepping into that must have been, I mean, I'm sure, like, very satisfying, but, like, a very overwhelming experience at the beginning. Like, how? Yeah. The first thing that was overwhelming was how do you prepare for a gig like this? Mm. There's no possible way of really accurately covering everything because they do so much. So, and I don't think it was really, very few people had that kind of situation where they got hired and had to hit the ground running and just do it. Um, a couple of people in the band were hired that way because most of them had been there for years. So the first thing I did was um, Walter and I, thank God bless him. He was so sweet. He was like, listen, I'm here. You don't have to feel any kind of way. You can contact me anytime, anything you need. I got you. If you want to get together, play through some stuff. If you want to call, ask me some questions. If you want to call and vent, <laughs> that's fine too. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And we hit the ground running. We got together a couple of times. He was like, I don't even know how to prepare you for this because there's so many freaking charts. I don't think I can have charts for you. <laughs> but I figured it out. And through talking with him and then also, of course, through uh, talking with the other guys in the band, like the majority of the guys in the band, I actually already knew, mm. which was a beautiful thing because I either grew up knowing them. Like Victor, he gave me my first lesson when I was 12, 11 years old, mm. when he was he was uh, running the Julia program. Vincent, I met when I was 15, when I was playing with the jazz Standard Youth Orchestra, and I was really cool with his brother too, <laughs> who was a phenomenal trumpet player. And then, of course, so many other players. Sherman, I worked with him. Love Sherman. <laughs> and then Winton, he actually he gave us a surprise masterclass one time in my high school. Wow. So it was kind of really a full circle. Carlos, we went to the same high school, and we knew <laughs> the same people who graduated. So that was one of the reassuring feelings at first, like. You're not going to be with complete strangers. You're with people that actually know and respect and support you being That's great. So you don't have to worry about <laughs> being like, we don't want you here because they wouldn't have called you if they didn't want you there. Mm. But I did realize right away that I had to, to work. I mean, I always strive to work hard, but I really realized, okay, it's you're going to have to take it to a whole nother level mm. because not only are you trying to play the music right, but you're trying to do the chair right. And there's also a historical significance behind it too. Mm. The fact that, yeah, this is something that doesn't really happen. They could call anybody, but they called you and you have to show up for not just yourself, you have to show up for your mentors that invested so much in you, your community. The world is watching, literally. And then also on a deeper level, for all the women out there who are performing or who have ever made careers as musicians, that's the same chair vibe Burnside or um, any of, of the wonderful leading women in jazz that didn't get to have their name sung or didn't 
get to have an opportunity like that to be given a place to be able to be respected by how they play. So you got a lot, a lot of room in your shoes to fill in and a lot to really live up to that's bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's, I mean, on the one hand, you could take that as like quite a bit of pressure, I guess, but it almost sounds nice that, you, you know, it's a little bit outside of yourself. Like you're wanting to, mm-hmm. to represent and do it for people that maybe haven't had the opportunity. And so you can, in a way, maybe take a bit of yourself out of it or something. Yeah, exactly. And then the crazy thing was, it was just that because every now and then a mentor or, or, or elder musician out of the blue, or even just a young lady or a young man or a friend of a teacher, hey, man, we're so freaking proud of you just to see you up there. And then just to hear you knowing that you were slaying that sucker, you played your behind off. Thank you for representing. Thank you for doing what you got to do, which makes you feel like, man, I spend most of my time wondering, am I doing enough? Am I doing it right? <laughs> but it's good to know like, oh, wow. Thank you. Mm. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Do my best that I can because this is for all of them mm. that helped me get there, here. All of those people who didn't get the names in their books or get the representation that they deserved. But also the, the women, young women who are coming along too that now know there's a bridge and that it's possible. In 30 years, yes, you can do this too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but you can do it too. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you, I, to be totally honest, I'm glad that you did raise this element of your being involved in, in Lincoln Center Orchestra because, you know, I, I, I'm very, um, I'm loath to ask the question, what's it like being the only woman in the no, 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 because I avoid that at all costs. Yeah. Because it's this broken record, but in an institution like does it Lincoln Center Orchestra, like it is a really significant, at least symbolically, it's something that people notice, Yeah, I think. And yeah, it's an institution that's been a certain way for such a long time and people have noticed that it is that way and there's been discussions about it being that way, you know, in the jazz community as well. And and so uh, it's really great to know that you that your being there has meaning for people and that like you're getting that feedback, not just, you know, on you as a, as a musician yourself, obviously, but just also like people, it means something to see a woman playing in that group has, um, how am I going to say what I want to say? Um, I guess I just, I just wonder if you've been talking with like other women in the community or other men in the community about this experience of being a woman in that orchestra and, you know, has it started different conversations around you? Has it changed the tone of conversations? I, you see why it's hard to, for me to ask this. I, it's a very kind of broad. broad yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And it's a combination of everything. Mm. Um, I found myself talking with a lot of educators, especially with my experience because I guess now, since being in that position, playing with that orchestra and seeing, oh, wow, you're a woman and you're the first woman in 30 years. We love to talk with you, your experience. And then the conversation ends up into, okay, well, how can we keep more girls involved? Which I'm very happy to be able to have those conversations now, thanks to being in that orchestra 
because whereas before they probably would have never asked me because they probably wouldn't have known about me, let mm-hmm. alone see me in that kind of situation playing with a high level band to know, oh, wow, you exist. And then I've also seen the part of it where, okay, you're there. Where is everybody else? Which then ends up becoming a teaching moment where it's like, okay, it's not just my struggle. Mm. It's the struggle of a lot of people that that you don't see. I'm one person of many. Here's an insight to what situations we're really dealing with in regards to retaining young women in the performing arts. Mm. Let's talk about what we can do in academia to help encourage and keep them. These are the things that they need. These are the things that they're dealing with. These are the situations that we don't really get to talk about. How can we create safe learning spaces that are inclusive? And then, of course, you encounter some of those who were some women, too, that were like, well, this is not really official anyway because, you know, you're just a sub. And it's like, well... If I was just subbing, I can understand if it was just for one gig, but that doesn't diminish a person's ability to, one, be able to do this, and two, it doesn't diminish the fact that they got a record of doing this for two years. When somebody asks you to stay in a band for a period of time, that's not something that it just kind of... So how are we as men and women supporting one another and how do we support some of those other women out there without diminishing or, or just kind of looking down on what they're doing? That's part of the problem too. Cause exactly what, what you're doing right now happens with a lot of other women too. Mm. So it's kind of created some interesting conversations, <laughs> but for the most part, it's been good. Um, mm. I'm grateful to be able to have those conversations because I realized had that not happened, we probably would not have these conversations. Mm-hmm. And they still exist, but not now we have an opportunity to get a little deeper. Yeah. yeah. In having these conversations, have you specifically had them with other m- members of the orchestra? And do you feel like that? has been kind of a learning moment or a teaching moment or like has shed some light on interesting things for them or you or both? Absolutely. We would have conversations all the time, which was funny. (laughs) Some of them would kind of approach me like, can can I borrow you for a minute? (laughs) What's wrong? Like, well, I just, I just want to talk about such and such if you don't mind. I'm like, no, what, what? and they're like, well, I'm just curious. What, what's your perspective? And I'm like, sure, I would love to talk with you and share mm-hmm. my insight or my perspective. And then they share their insights and like, well, you know, we're interested or I'm working as a professor or I'm working with this organization or I'm doing this and that. And I'm trying to, in my own way, help bring more awareness to the fact that we, one, need to start with the education system and finding ways to bridge the gap, but then also bring more awareness. Some of them have even uh, had their own not-for-profits that they run mm. and, and, and uh, giving students an opportunity to learn about jazz. Kenny Rampton has a jazz outreach initiative out in Las Vegas. And I'm going to be working with him next year, which I'm looking forward to um, and talking about some of these issues mm. and 
terms of, you know, gender and I guess in the case of jazz education, how we can make the bridge and get educators to really know what's happening and how they can play a great critical role in bridging the gap. Mm. Um, Of course, I love Victor Goins. He's been like a, a mentor to me and we have conversations all the time about this. So, yeah. Mm. What are some key changes you feel that would help? I've talked about this in uh, previous episodes of the podcast with a couple of guests, uh, one of whom is a, is a music educator and, and just a, a teacher in general. And she had like a lot of, um, a lot of thoughts to share, but from your perspective, like what are some of the key things that you think could be done sort of at the education uh, level, at the school education level for uh, young girls to kind of help bring them into into music, into jazz music, and, and then to retain them? Sure. We're at the school level, first and foremost, representation. And that's for elementary, junior, high school, and collegiate. You cannot talk about diversity without having diversity in action and representation in action. So there has to be an effort to include voices that are not just male, but also, you know, female women voices of professionals out there that are doing it. Um, You also have to create spaces where we can have those conversations as educators so that there's some type of understanding amongst us and knowing one, these issues exist, two, here are solutions that we are trying to create to help solve the problem. Because many times, and this maybe this might be a personal feeling of thought, but we're we're not as connected as we should be when it comes to talking about these issues and setting up something that's a standard for understanding and knowing how we can deal with these young students emerging into society. Being 14, 15, 16, those years are critical because you're getting introduced into society, even younger than that at 10, 12. Mm-hmm. Now with social media, it's probably even earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so there's certain gender norms and constructs that are, are being perpetuated that we knowingly participate and unknowingly participate that we have to analyze and evaluate. How are we perpetuating these in our classrooms? Mm-hmm. What are some ways that we can create solutions where we're including everybody Mm. and we're not designing it so that if we have a situation where we are judging based on the ability, well, let's make sure that we're giving encouragement to those areas where, where we might have some weaknesses. When you're dealing with 13, 14, 15 year old girls, they're starting to learn how to develop their confidence to ridicule them or to, to leave them out because they're not confident enough and judge it as, well, they're not really a great player. Well, that's not fair because you're dealing with boys and girls. They're completely different. (laughs) Boys are dealing with a a shot of testosterone. (laughs) Girls are dealing with trying to figure out how they could find their place in society and are being combated with all these images and and perceptions of what it is to be a woman, just like the guys are being Mm. with those things too for themselves. Yeah, and and women are not socialized typically to to be competitive with with men ever right. as well, which I think is a really key point of difference. Like men, young boys are encouraged to be competitive right. with other boys. Right. And young girls are encouraged to be competitive with each other. 
maybe for male attention as they get older, but from but they're trying to like please the male society, so they're not taught to be right in a position with men that is like yeah competitive or antagonistic or or if they are going against the grain speaking up for themselves or taking on roles that exhibit leadership it's looked at as oh you are mm. I'm not going to say it <laughs> or you're a uh you're, you're type a or you're whatever which is yeah. like well, hold up wait a minute if he has leadership qualities do you call him type a <laughs> mm. look at it if this is a strength that she has and she's able to through music find her way of developing her voice confidently, that actually should be celebrated. Mm-hmm. How can we make that work in this situation? Or if she's feeling shy, okay, how can we create reinforcement to help her develop her identity so that she can get the confidence to be able to play? Uh, yeah. Be- yeah, it's really, it's super interesting. I, I I don't know if you feel this way, but I guess we are starting to witness some change but I think there's still such a long way to go in setting women up from, you know, a young age to to kind of be in a like, uh, yeah, musical kind of space on the same playing yeah. field that the men are on, like coping with the same kinds of struggles rather than having to cope with all of these other fucking struggles on top of just like being yeah. a good musician or. yeah. But then that's why having examples is great because then they're able to help make those connections when they see and hear it for themselves. Mm. Oh, okay. If this is where she is, or this is where for me, it was like, okay, well, if this is what Dexter Gordon is, is in his level of confidence, I need to get it up here because that's where I'm aiming for. Mm. So So good. (laughs) I, I love that you were aiming for his musical confidence. I think it plays out. I think you, you hear it in your in your music. I have another question. Uh, I don't know if it'll come. You spoke earlier in talking about um, bringing more girls in into music education and supporting them in music education. You spoke about representation and diversity, and it made me also reflect on what I have observed and what I've talked about with some other people in terms of black uh, representation in the jazz scene, because I know that perhaps in your environment that you've come through, you know, if I think about like Lincoln Center or something as an example, like there are a number of black musicians in that community and black um, musicians are well represented in that environment, arguably. But I know that like, outside of maybe that echelon of musician or outside of New York City or in other in other places that a lot of people's experience of jazz scenes is that they nowadays tend to be much more white dominated Mm. and perhaps similarly a lot of and maybe this is also true for somewhere like Lincoln Center jazz audiences often are like pretty white dominated. Um, Do you think that that's fair to say? And if so, like, do you have any particular thoughts or or feelings about that? I mean, that is something that I I always notice when performing this mm -hmm. music. Um, Jazz, 
Jazz has always been about the community, the Black experience and the Black community from its inception. When you talk about the blues, it's about our experience, our life. What's life like for us coming up living in this country, America? And how we are reminded every day of how our identity interacts with our existence here in in this country. And also out of this music, we're able to not only express ourselves, but also create the identity of who we see ourselves as through our own eyes versus what we have been told. With that said, this music has always been communal. As the people, as Black people, we are communal. Mm. And it goes back to Africa. There was somebody born. There was a celebration through music. If there was a war, it was communicated through our drums. If there was um, a death, communicated through the drums. Everything and anything that we did in terms of living was communal. And the music was that too. So when you listen to jazz, it's, it's stemming from that same tradition. When you hear the interaction of the bass with the drums and you hear the rhythm of the, the piano interacting with the lines of the horn player or the vocal or the phrasing of the vocalist, we're telling stories. We're always telling stories. That's the essence of Black music, anything mm-hmm. regarding Black music, whether you're talking about the blues, jazz, soul, you name it. The name jazz was not the name that we gave it. It was a name that had a completely different meaning. That was not something good. And once again, it's a situation where we're being given a name that we did not choose Mm. to describe what it is that we're expressing. And the funny thing about it is that through history and capitalism, Anytime there's a way to market off of something, nine times out of 10, the ones who are controlling the money hmm. are controlling how the story's being told to. Yeah. And the people that are creating the story are not telling the story themselves. And this, you see, has been reflected in history in the books. You also see it reflected Even with the startup of record companies, you talk about Bessie Smith, her records were doing so great, so well, so much so that they had to create race records because you can't have this black lady singing this great music called the blues that's selling like hotcakes. Now we got now we got to establish that this is a black artist singing black music and this is another artist that's not black singing this music. Good music should be good music, but. In the state of the country at that time, it's very segregated. Hmm. So you see that it's, again, being labeled, being separated. Um, And as you go on throughout the history, you start to see that with the the music labels, with the venues. Um, We talk about how Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane for them playing at Carnegie Hall, that was a huge feat because not too long ago for a long period of time, Carnegie Hall was associated with 
musicians not black and jazz was not considered a music to be respectable enough to be played in a place like that. Mm. So you have this music being promoted, marketed and labeled by everything and anything but the people that made it black people. And it's being marketed in a way where, okay, well, the name is not great, but now we want to make money off of it. Let's sell it to the people that we want to sell it to, to make money off of and put people in there that are not the people making it, but other people. And let's promote them as these are the people that are making the music and the ones that are really making the music. Let's not put them in the mix. Or if we put them in the mix, we're going to make money off of them. They can't have their publishing. We're only going to give them a couple of dollars for the concert, but we're going to retain the rights to whatever this is to keep making money long after they're dead and gone. So you're dealing with this history over and over and over again. And what do you think it's going to breed? This is a system that was set up. Mm. It's going to perpetuate, continue perpetuating it. So now today when we look at this music, people consider jazz as, oh, you know, upper echelon, you know, sophisticated music. Well, it's always been sophisticated. But think about it. The people that created this music, did they own the labels? Yeah. Did they own the uh, the venues that this was booked at? Did they have control of the publishing, the placement of these songs in the movies and whatnot? No. So whoever has the money has the ability to tell the story and has the ability to market it however they want. Is it 100% accurate of the story? No, but it's making money. Mm. So that's the only thing that matters. And you see this kind of stemming from that, but it's created a way where, yeah, well, a lot of people now think, well, Black people don't play jazz when it's like, well, Black people started jazz. From the field hollering, starting it from the, the chain gangs. But you have something called capitalism that distorted this story. There yeah. are amazing musicians that have never gotten the props that they deserve. Because who are the ones writing the, the books, the history books that left them out? Yeah. Time You see this with women, but then you also see this with Black people, too. Yeah. I'll never forget I was reading a, so- a, a, a story about Mary Lou Williams and how she wrote a song called What's Your Story, Morning Glory. She was the one who wrote that song, but somebody took it upon themselves to call the song Black Coffee and rewrite it and made money off of it. This was Mary Lou Williams' work, but she was a Black woman and dealing with a situation where the system took her music marketed, sold it, renamed it, and made money off of it. But there's so many stories of that. I mean, another thing, I know I kind of went around and off tangent, but... No, but I... Yeah, sorry, I'll let you finish and then I'll... But one thing I will say, too, when you take the music out of the community, you're making it so that the very same people that create this music, their people can't even support it or support them. Because not only... Well, one, you're catering this music to everybody who can afford when this music was created in the community, you're making it now like an exclusive thing. So even if you put in the people that are performing it and making the music in these venues, the clientele that are going to be able to afford it are not going to look like them because you took it out of the community. Is it in their schools? Are they able to access it in their neighborhoods? If they have it in their neighborhoods, is it still respected on the same level? It's kind of disregarded, not in the same 
circle or clout. So all of these things kind of play together in creating, I guess, the situation that we have now. Mm. For instance, education. Most people think, oh, well, you know, you play jazz, go to school and learn how to play jazz. Okay, now, yeah, in the last 30 years, that's been what's been kind of been done. But how many students of color can't afford $50,000, $60,000 a year? Yeah. Well, does that mean they're not a great musician or does that mean that they're not credible because they didn't go to school when this music was created in the community? With an oral tradition, yeah. Right. Does, Does that make them less of a sophisticated jazz musician? Because they're coming out of the, the tradition of learning it through the ear and learning it through their mentors and through the records. Is that more weight than yeah. learning a couple of chords out of a book? So yeah. this is the situation that's kind of has been. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for articulating it so well. I hope it's a jumping off point for people kind of hearing that complete picture that it might be something for people to reflect on and, and maybe people can start to consider yeah. where to go next and well, and what might be changed. Yeah. I mean, the thing you definitely want to do next is put the music back into the community, bridge the two together. Yeah. Don't make it exclusive. This music was for every, this music that we all enjoyed in the community. So we have to kind of bring that back somehow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, I have a hundred million other things I would love to talk to you about. It's been really interesting, but we got, we got to go. But I, yeah, just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me today and, and to talk. I, I really appreciate it. It's been, uh, oh, it's been great. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry. My light is going away. <laughs> no, no. All good. All good. And it's people are just going to be hearing you anyway. It's just for my benefit. And uh, I've been looking at your beautiful face for about two hours now. So it's all good. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And sorry, I have to run. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm still talking. I'll, I'll let you get on with your life. <laughs> all right. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, Camille. Oh, my pleasure. Nice meeting you. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Camille and to buy her music, you can head to camillefermanmusic.com. Camille will also be starting the second season of her mentorship series, The Haven Hang, Young Lioness Musician Q&A and Advice Hour, which will air from February 9th, 2021 at 7pm North American Eastern Standard Time. You can find episodes of Series 1 of The Haven Hang both on Camille's YouTube and Facebook pages. Among others, the show features guests like Tia Fuller, Dee Dee Bridgewater, Lakeisha Benjamin, and the legendary Bertha Hope. I'll include links to The Haven Hang, Camille's website, and some other content in the show notes. Thanks again to the Shake 'em Up Jazz Band for allowing us to use their version of Vivian Gary's tune, A Woman's Places in the Groove, for our podcast theme. If you enjoyed this episode and are interested in this project, it would help us a lot if you could like, share, and subscribe. Reviews on podcast hosting platforms like Apple Music are also super helpful for the podcast to gain exposure. If you'd like to follow Women in Jazz, you can join our mailing list on the website, follow us on Facebook, and find us at Instagram with at women.in.jazz, where I do a regular Women of Jazz history feature, spotlighting a great female jazz musician of the past. You can also help to support the podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash women in jazz. 
Thanks again for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode.